Um, I'd like to talk a little more now and pick up the theme as I take it further. Um, this is a slightly bigger chunk of teachings. I'll probably talk for just under an hour, I imagine. So it's probably important to be relatively comfortable um, and still to be awake as possible. image and fantasy in a way that the best I can find right now, but um, the many possibilities, uh, possible ways that they might manifest, express themselves, be sensible in our lives um, and in our meditations. And usually, uh, in this kind of culture, first of all in this society, and secondly in this um, kind of meditation culture, insight meditation culture, we're not usually um, even aware of what fantasies are running through our lives. I don't mean just the sort of flotsam and jetsam of, of daydreams and nonsense. I mean the deeper occurrence of fantasy. We're not usually aware. We don't usually think that way. We don't usually um, feel the life of that and how central it is actually to our whole sense of existence and where we're going and what we're doing and even what we're doing in practice. So we're not usually aware of the fantasies that run up, that are in our lives and the fantasies that are in our practice as part of practice, as a good part of practice. And when it comes to actually images that arise uh, for us as objects, um, this image or that image or others in the mind or whatever, um, it's interesting to sort of survey a little bit what the typical responses or attitudes are in, say, um, the insight meditation tradition, for example, or, or a little bit wider. Um, very often, we're just kind of given the message, ignore them. They're, uh, they have no value, they're kind of meaningless, and just ignore them. It's just daydreaming, it's just nonsense. Um, and so that's very often what we're told, and that's very often what we practice, so that we actually become better and better at not giving them attention. Or, I might say, yeah, mostly ignore them, but if it's a nice one, or a kind of particularly Buddhist one, then that's okay, you can be with that a little bit. Um, but still, it's, a kind of, it's not really the real thing, is, is the sense. Uh, or, you say, not so much ignore them, but notice. Notice what it is that arises, but just notice and let it go. It's okay, let it arise, let it pass. Um, and sometimes that even that can be extended a little bit so that there's a kind of attitude of you see what's inside of you. You see if uh, something angry or violent or weird or whatever, you see that that's inside of you. And so a little bit, the sense of the self is stretched a little bit uh, so that we don't judge these things in others. So some of you will know that poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, Please Call Me By My True Names. Do you know that? So in a way, that's what he's saying. Look at all this stuff that happens, and the snake that eats the frog, and the this and that. And say, actually, who's calling by my true names? I am all of that. So it's nice. It's uh, there's less judgment there when we see that in the world. 
um, and something is a little bit expanded. So they're allowed and accepted, but that's not where I want to stop today. Okay? So we're going further out than what we mostly encounter. Um, because in that way of engaging, of relating to them, the images are not empowered. They're allowed for a moment, looked at, acknowledged, and let go of. They are not empowered. Um, another common possibility is a person uh, with more sort of psychological, psychotherapeutic background says, oh, this is from my past history. This image is somehow representing or constellating something from my past, usually from early childhood or whatever. That's the idea of what it is and what it's doing. Or, again, psychological theory says, it's a compensation. I tend not to be strong, so I'm having an image of strength or whatever. The psyche is trying to balance me and compensate for my lack of something or, or, or whatever other characteristic. Or a person says, these are part of me. They're part of me. They're aspects of me. And, and that can have a few different ways that could uh, be conceived of. But generally, then, they're part of me. My job is somehow to integrate them, uh, to bring them, somehow mix them together in some more consolidated self, or balance them, uh, so that there's not an imbalance in the being, in the self. Or, and to come to some kind of wholeness. What's missing? So I need a bit of that, or I need a bit of that, I'll concentrate on that image to get a bit of that. Integration, balance, or wholeness. Um, and sometimes the integration there actually becomes more, hidden under this word integration, comes more a sense of, there is a sort of chief executive self which gets to choose and keep everything in line and make sure nothing acts up or gets out of hand. It's just kind of in charge there. And that's sometimes what the word integration, with the best of intentions, moves towards uh, unwittingly. And sometimes they're part of me. Uh, all these can be mixed, these uh, possibilities. But sometimes we regard them as part of me, as, you know, maybe it's coming up as an image, maybe it's this crazy animal or this dragon or whatever it is. They're, part, they're just representations. What they really are is factors or elements of mind. So it's coming up an image, but what it really is is strength or courage, or loving-kindness, or compassion, or something. So we put them in an abstract concept, an abstract psychological or spiritual concept, put it in a little box. Uh, and again, often often then the, the uh, orientation <coughs> is to integrating, to balancing, and to, and to moving towards a kind of wholeness. That's the sort of direction of aspiration. And as I said, all those could be mixed. But those are sort of the, the, the tendencies. Um, it strikes me as maybe not almost impossible to prove any of that. Almost impossible to prove any of it. Uh, they are theories. They are beliefs, theories, psychological theories. People take them as true and, and real and believe in them, but actually very difficult to prove. And I would again say, in drawing on deep um, Buddhist insights, I'm saying none of them are ultimately true. None of them are ultimately true. Any of that we've just been through. So what then? Can I step back from the usual question of what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, and actually not look in those terms of right, wrong, true, false. And then wh which way would I look? How would I look? Maybe better to look not in that way, but rather 
what conceptual framework or what way of looking of regarding these images or fantasies that exist what way of looking at them what conception leads to what so conceiving of them this way tends to open experience up in this direction and lead to this or that conceiving of them in a very different way actually unfolds a whole different sense of, of the experience and, and the direction in life None of them are true. I'd venture to say almost impossible to prove any of that. And so where does that leave us? And maybe it's even a more helpful way of conceiving in the larger sense to say, well, which way of conceiving leads to what? So that then leaves us with the possibility of experimenting. I can experiment with this. So I'm, I'm no longer in this game of what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. Do I dare to experiment? How much do I dare to experiment? And if I'm going to experiment in this realm, mindfulness is necessary. That's my tool. I cannot experiment without sensitivity and mindfulness. And by that I mean particularly a, a, a bodily awareness, an awareness of, of what this feels like and how it changes with different images and emotions and reactions and resonances. The sensitivity and mindfulness to the body and the emotionality. And that's absolutely crucial because it's that that distinguishes all this from daydreaming. When we're daydreaming, there's none of that. We're lost, we're, we're gone, we're, we're not in, in touch here. So what makes this, we could say, imaginal practice versus daydreaming? It's that, partly. So that with this sensitivity and mindfulness, then I can feel what are the resonances, as I said earlier. What does this stir in me? How, how, how do I feel this image and, and the depth of it and what it resonates um, in itself and in me? What are the particular emotions, the, the pathos that it stirs? What's the quality there emotionally? It might be quite complex. What are the energies that it um, opens in, in my body that I can feel because of the mindfulness and because of the sensitivity? And what's its particular um, sense of meaningfulness. And I'll make a distinction between that word meaningfulness and the word meaning. I don't know if this is correct English. But meaning, I've reduced it. It means this. It means courage. It means strength. It means whatever it is. Um, meaningfulness is something you can't really get to the bottom of. There's a sense of resonance, of meaningfulness. It's more like a poetic image. You can't arrive at the bottom of it. It does not reduce to something else. So all that is included in the mindfulness and the sensitivity if we're making a practice out of this and experimenting. And what if, further, I don't judge immediately the image by its, by its obvious nature? So I might have an image that is um, very beautiful in a traditional sense, very peaceful, very uh, sort of um, soft or white or whatever, very conventional in some sense. Or I might get an image that in some way is kind of strange or grotesque or perhaps violent in some way or a weird kind of pathology in it or um, strangely erotic or something. What if I don't judge the image by the content of the image? Because any or all of those, even strange, weird, violent, erotic, whatever, may be right. They may be important for us. So I have to stand back from my immediate inclination to judge it based on a usual framework of what's good, what's bad, what's spiritual, what's not. How can I tell 
if an image is important for me, if it's right, so to speak? How can I tell? Well, it, that's why I say use the body, what I call the, the, the energy body or the subtle body energy. It's that this field here, I can feel the resonances there. I can feel how the energies uh, move or come into alignment or whatever. Through that awareness, I can discern whether I'm on a right track or a helpful track. No matter what the image, if it's right, I would say, um, something opens in the energy of the body. Something feels energized. Something actually feels calmed in a strange way, unified and aligned. So the body, the sensitivity to the body, not my typical moral framework, the sensitivity to the body is telling me kind of what's worth pursuing staying with exploring. And I will see a few things, if, if we experiment this, we're going to see a few things uh, undoubtedly. One is that the relationship I have with an image always shapes it and always colors it. So it's not independent of my relationship. You can see this in nightmares. The monster is chasing me in the nightmare, and if for some reason I turn towards it and there's less fear, what happens to the monster usually? It changes. It's not independent of my Im- of my relationship with it. That's true of nightmares. It's true of this image work, what I'm calling imaginal practice. It's also true of any perception, actually. It's never, ever separate from the relationship that I have with it. Even a body sensation of pain, heartache, whatever it is. Always my relationship is part of it. So I'm going to notice that, and it's important to realize that. But I notice something even more fundamental than that, actually, if I experiment, if I dare to experiment. I, I start to realize that the view that I have, the way of conceiving that I have, which I may not be conscious of, the view and the way of conceiving make more difference than anything else. Here's this image, and the, the conception of it that I have is the most, in the end, it's the most powerful thing and the most interesting thing about all this. I could probably sit here all day and tell you the most weird and strange images that either I've experienced or people have reported to me. But in the end, it's not the nature of the image so much as the, the conception of it that is the really interesting and the really sort of fertile uh, aspect of all this. But the view, the way of conceiving, it, it makes a difference, a huge difference, and it determines a lot of what com- comes up. And again, you can see this with any experience, uh, any perception or dream experience or imaginal experience. You can see it in the realm of the emotions. How much, uh, for, let's say, catharsis, the catharsis of emotions from the past, so-called. When I believe in that, it's a conceptual framework. And that believing in that conceptual framework tends to trigger more of that stuff. When I actually bring some questioning into that, it tends to not uh, generate that process so much. What's going on? It's because it's not an ultimate truth and it's not separate from the, the mind's conceiving. Okay, so even now, um, if <coughs> or even by this point, if, if you're listening, and, and so far from everything you've heard in your life, from uh, Dharma things and read, etc., and all your answers, if, if the way of conceiving Dharma is basically learn to calm down a little bit, to relax, calm down, even out a little bit, and learn how to be mindful, to meet something called life, 
which is taken to be reality in, in some way. If that's it, calm down, be with experience. If that's, that's what practice is, then probably a lot of what I've said so far, and certainly what I'm about to say, is going to sound completely nuts, just absolute nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It does not fit in the box, if that's the box. But that was not the Buddha's box, necessarily. The Buddha is actually saying, not meet life or be with something called, that we tend to assume is reality. Saying, actually, see the emptiness of everything that we take to be real. See the illusory nature of everything we take to be real. And from that seeing comes a much deeper freedom. Not, he doesn't say be with life, meet life over and over again. That's a practice. It serves something much deeper. He wants us to see the emptiness of everything. From that comes a deeper feeling. For many people, some of you will just relate to all this imaginary business anyway, but for some people it's that understanding of emptiness that then legitimizes the whole project. Because I'm not cutting off my sense of reality and putting it in the normal modernist box, then I can walk through a door that's actually a lot more open. And I could take the experiment further, in fact a lot further, if, if I dare, and as I say, I'm not thrusting this anyone, so you can take just as much as uh, feels useful. But take the experiment further, because reality is not fixed in this way, and because I cannot prove any of these frameworks and theories, and because I understand that the way of conceiving affects what happens, it determines what unfolds, because of all that, I can take the experiment further, and I can begin to entertain certain ideas, just to see what happens. Uh, that word idea, by the way, some of you know, the word idea is a Greek, it's from a Greek word, eidos, E-I-D-O-S, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And it, it means Greek for idea, but it also implies in, in the ancient Greek the, the way we look at things, so that we are always, whether we realize it or not, looking at ourselves and at the world and existence through the lenses of ideas. Most of, most of the time we're not aware of it. But what if we entertain certain ideas, or an idos, and entertain, maybe these images or these things are more autonomous. Uh, Just give them, uh, grant them that they have a bit more autonomy, or a lot more autonomy than I would tend to assume. What if we entertain the idea that they want something? This or that image wants or even demands something of me. T.S. Eliot wrote an essay once um, called uh, On Poetry and Poets. And he wrote of how one can be oppressed by the burden which he must bring to birth. Something is demanding or asking something of me. And again, if I share from my years ago, this sense that something was coming through, say someone like Jimmy Hendrix, something was being asked of him. Um, or that woman that I shared about earlier whose mother died, and how much she related to this idea that, that the dead mother was alive and asking something to come through, something to come through. There's a demand there. So what if we entertain that kind of idea? And what if we entertain the idea of not integrating these things, not subordinating them to this chief executive self, not pressing them together in some kind of balance, wholeness, or aspiration of wholeness, what if we <coughs> don't tame them? We don't try and tame them. 
What if we seek more to enliven them rather than tame them? What if we seek to enliven them, to enliven their power, to give them their power? Listen to this. There's a wonderful poem by Rilke. Uh, it's, a, it's a long poem, so I'll just read you a little bit of it. He starts the poem, he's talking about, he's looking out the window and he can see a storm approaching and he senses the power of that storm. And then he says, and listen to this in the light of what we're talking about, what we choose to fight is so tiny, what fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel, he says. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel. So what if we entertain these different ideas and we see what that opens? What if we do not reduce them to this or that? They're not a result of my past. What if you just entertain the idea that they are not a result of my past? That sacred prostitute, that wasn't anything to do with her past and her upbringing and all that. The voodoo guy that devours the heart with blood all over his hands, nothing to do with her past or with some kind of socioeconomic factors or something. Wasn't compensating something in her life. So we're orienting towards opening up in a very different uh, potential here. If I, if I keep them as persons, as figures, as animated, as beings, then although I could say these are qualities there, I could give them a psychological concept, when I keep them as persons, they're always bigger than a concept. A person is always bigger than, a, than some kind of psychological label, an essential quality, or an aspect of being, or some, whatever bigger than a symbol in the sense of a sign of something reducing to something. The poet Auden, W.H. Auden, said, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. We are lived by powers we pretend to understand. If I dare entertain this kind of way of relating to them, Something opens and is undermined in the self-sense. That's where the relationship with the central project of Buddhist practice. Something's undermined and opens in the self-sense. The self is not so prioritized then. With practice and with exploring, I, f- I feel that this kind of way of orienting can also mature. It can, it can grow and become more subtle. That's actually its characteristic. Of it. it becomes more subtle, like all practices. So some of you will be familiar with shamanic journeying. Does anyone know that sort of thing? Yeah, a little bit. Um, or active imagination. Sometimes with those uh, kinds of practices. So a person imagines themselves on a journey through a territory, through a landscape, and encountering on that journey different beings or mythical beings or whatever, and doing this or doing that, or having these encounters and moving on, etc. So it's a lovely, lovely form of practice. Um, but I want to make a distinction today, again, just for the sake of where where do we not tend to take this kind of stuff. A distinction between narrative image 
and iconic or poetic image. <coughs> so narrative image, what I mean by that is something moves through time. So there's a story here and a narrative, and it's unfolding and comes to some resolution. The uh, hero slashes away at the undergrowth, slays the dragon, climbs the castle walls, rescues the princess, and they live happily ever after. <coughs> it's a resolution. It's a narrative image. If you think about poetic image in a poem, it just is. It doesn't go anywhere. There's not a story there. It's some, there's got a quality of eternality to it. And that, that is partly where it has deeper power. So when I narratively move through a landscape and do all these adventures and stuff and come to some resolution, it can, um, not has to, but it can reinforce the ego, the ego making the journey. And in a way, what we might be interested in is actually not that, not so much the ego and the heroic journey, but something else. So, iconic or poetic image, images have this quality of always to them, forever, eternal. That uh, wanderer I mentioned this morning, he's always wandering. He will never arrive. He, w- he is homeless. He will never find a home. It would be wrong to say, introduce him to a, a nice woman, to get married, settle down, here's a nice place you can live. Wrong. Wrong. Not, not right. The soldier is always doing battle. Always. And if he's not doing battle, he's resting from battle in preparation for the next battle. An eternality of image here. So, in, in meditation, if you want to, it's not so much a journey, but so much as sitting with this thing and kind of stewing with it, resonating with it. It's uh, Static is the wrong word, but it has this... It's not going anywhere or evolving in that sense. Uh, and that brings a very different flavor and orientation unfolding to, to the, pro- the process itself in the meditation. So, all this, where saying, I dare to experiment with not reducing it and not uh, integrating and not taming them and all of that and granting them more autonomy and giving them power and what happens if I don't literalize them, these are not my parents I don't concretize this I don't um, take it as a symbol although I can, it symbolizes strength or whatever it is I don't reduce it to my personal history and there'll be some, for myself, years, decades of interpreting everything through the psychotherapeutic lens of this, this, I am like I am now because of what happened to me some decades ago in my childhood, whatever, with family and da 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 Fine, very, very good, but sometimes a person might, after a while, isn't there another way of looking at things? Is that really completely true? Is it, at some point, even interesting anymore as a way of looking? So we get locked into something and it becomes almost unquestionable, taboo, to question it. But if I don't do all that, don't literalize, I don't tame, I don't reduce, I don't say it's a symbol, it equals this, then something as it opens out, it's not contained, there's an infinite depth here, an infinite depth of mystery, something opens beyond the human in the way that we nowadays usually think of what a human being is. There's mystery here, something I would say more religious than humanistic, beyond the purely human. Could go even further, okay, if, if one wants to experiment. There was uh, a scholar of 
um, Islamic mysticism in the 20th century called Henri Corbin, French uh, scholar. And uh, they have a branch of Islamic mysticism quite interested in this sort of stuff, not quite the same, but similar. And he said, it's not your individuation, that word from Jung, if you know, not your individuation that is your task, but the angel's individuation. Not your individuation, but the individuation of the angel. That is your task. So it's, I could conceive of this thing. It doesn't even, it's not even about me and my growth and my process and getting it together and being more balanced and all that. And then some things turn around. And the question is not, what can I get from this angel? What can it give me, this demon, to balance, to grow, to whatever it is? But what do you want to the angel, to the demon? What do you want? That becomes the question. And in a way, it's a much more powerful question. This is um, paraphrasing uh, from James Hillman. He said, we can regard images this way as highly intentional, as necessary, as presenting a claim, moral, erotic, intellectual, aesthetic, and demanding a response. It is an affecting present, meaning affecting the heart. Seem, they seem, the images seem to bear an instinctive direction for a destiny. Such images mean well for us, back us up and urge us on, understand us more deeply than we understand ourselves, expand our sensuousness and spirit and love us. This message-bearing experience of the image and the feeling of blessing that an image can bring recalls the Neoplatonic sense of images. Neoplatonism is a very influential sort of um, thread of philosophy in, in, in the Western philosophical tradition and the Western uh, religions uh, for many centuries. It recalls the Neoplatonic sense of images as daimons, D-A-I-M-O-N-E-S, and angels. And the word angel literally means message bearer. Very different orientation. Not viewing these uh, images, these beings, as me or even part of me. But what do they want of me and from me? They influence me. They exert their power on me and on my life. They need something. What do they need? They influence my perceptions. They influence my ideas. Back to that word, idos. they have a particular aesthetic style. There's different kinds of beauty associated with different kinds of uh, beings, if you like, different kind of persons. They have their own style of morality or values. <coughs> Start to conceive or have the possibility of conceiving of existence in a very different way. Is that flying dragon or that soldier or that wanderer that I mentioned, are they mirror in my life, is it because I have certain experiences that these images arise? Or is it equally, or perhaps even more the case, that my life mirrors those images? That they are more the the root of my being, if you like, in a certain sense. And my life expresses that flying dragon, that soldier, that wanderer in different ways. It's the other way, maybe. The other way around. It can be looked at the other way around. And then go even further. What if I might ask, can I serve? Can I serve these persons? Can I see 
or conceive of the psyche as being bigger than the human. It's not in here somewhere. I am in something bigger. There's James Hillman again talking about this. If we entertain, I'm paraphrasing, if we entertain uh, this kind of framework, this kind of idols, then he says, then our essentially differing human individuality is really not human at all, but more the gift of an inhuman daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N, or D-A-E-M-I, an inhuman daemon who demands human service. Here he echoes Corbett, it is not my individuation, but the daemons, not my fate that matters to the gods, but how I care for the psychic persons entrusted to my stewardship during my life. It is not life that matters, but soul, and how life is used to care for the soul. This is a very, very different way of feeling and sensing and perceiving of existence. So as I say, for me there's something more religious, bigger than the typical humanist way of being. And I feel when I come to my deathbed, if I'm still compass mentors, this is what will matter to me. These are the questions I'll be asked. This is what will really matter. Have I done my duty to these demons or angels that seem to be asking something from me, or asking some things from me? Have I done my duty to that? Have I carried that out? I don't care too much whether I'm comfortable, I have an easeful life, whether people like me or don't like me. Something else is going to be the, the thing that really, really matters when it comes to it. I don't feel me and my life on that level is actually that important. So there's a possibility of stretching something in quite a different way of orienting to it. And we start to reconsider certain things, possibly. Desire. We tend to think, especially from a Buddhist framework, Desire is seeking to increase pleasant sensations, or hold on to them, and decrease, or um, get rid of, unpleasant sensations. And that's why there is desire, right? It's to increase the pleasant, decrease the unpleasant. And desire comes from the self. It's the self, the ego, that has desire. Maybe that's a simplification, maybe it's oversimplifying something. Maybe some desires, some depths of desires, come from the demons and the angels. It's not the little self, and it's not just about getting what's more pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant. So that woman, I say, can't stop partying. Is it really the case that she's just like that because she's avoiding certain emotions? Is that really what's going on? I don't think, knowing her a little bit, that that's what's going on. Of course, that can sometimes be the case. Something else is going on. Something richer, deeper, in a way more holy than that. Okay, so if you're listening and you might feel, well, this is pretty bonkers, um, and you might also feel this is pretty dangerous. It seems to feel, I don't know, it's pretty dangerous. So this is important. There's a few things to say about about that, the aspect of possible danger. First thing is to say, as a more general thing, and then to get into specifics, first thing is to say that any path, any technique, any practice, any view of a path um, brings with it certain dangers, so they're different depending on what you do and what you choose. Uh, 
But it's important to be conscious what they are. There's no such thing as a path or a practice or a technique or an approach without danger. The dangerous thing is if we think there is. And we're not aware of this is the practice I do, this is the path I agree with, and we don't see what the dangers of that particular path are. There are always particular dangers that go with particular paths. In relation to what we talked about, yeah, have to be a little bit careful here. So we're not talking about belief. I'm not talking about believing something. I'm talking more poetically or mythically, if you like. Myths are not supposed to be believed, at least not in our age, and poems are not supposed to be believed, but we can talk about poetic truth or mythic truth. It's a different kind of truth. So it's not about believing, it's about entertaining certain ideas or ideas, a way of looking at something. And what happens when I do that? What does it open? What possibilities? What different sense of things? So that's a good question. What does it open? What will it bring? Will it make me happy if I do this? Uh, some of it will, tremendous joy. But that's not really the whole of it, and some of it won't make me happy. Will it bring freedom? That's the more standard Buddhist question. Will it bring freedom? And I would say yes, a radical level of freedom. A freedom beyond even what we typically conceive of as freedom, which we tend to put in a box. Beyond even that's a radical freedom. But even that is not quite all that it is, because I talked about duty and the beautiful duty, and serving and the burden. So even the freedom is not quite completely uh, what we might assume it to be. Fulfillment might be a better word. Something is fulfilled deep in the being through this way of approaching things. If I introduce a word soulfulness, that's a word we don't often hear at all, either in well, we don't hear it in, in the insight meditation tradition much. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's hard to put it into words, actually. But I mean something about um, the sense of resonance, of meaningfulness, of kinds of beauty, of re- uh, something that speaks to the soul, something that has seemingly very much to do with my death and my life and what I'm expressing and how I sense existence. It's as if there are other dimensions of existence that sometimes we can flatten, our practice can flatten existence down to one dimension. Maybe there are others, other aspects of the being that need need the space to be given life and explored. Soulfulness. Socrates, um, this is actually from Norman Norman O'Brown, but he says, um, Our greatest blessings, says Socrates in the Phaedrus, come to us by way of madness, provided, he adds, that the madness comes from the God or the gods. Our real choice is between holy and unholy madness. And maybe something in us needs that. Some of you, I know, some of you will be listening, I don't relate to this at all, and actually there are, I'd say, typically a couple of reasons why I don't like this at all. But some of you will be relating, and even some of you very new to meditation, I get it speaks to me. Something, for some people, there's a soul necessity here. There's a calling to relating and to seeing things this way. I feel called. Now, I'm using that word soul, and I don't mean by it an entity or a thing. I do not mean that. I mean more a way of looking, and at the risk of sounding circular, a way of looking that gives rise to soulfulness, meaning everything that I said before. 
just like I can use the word self. And as a Buddhist of long practice, etc., I know that self is illusory, is empty. But I can use that language and I can look and relate in terms of self. And I can use the language of inner critic and know that it's not something real. And I can use the language of angel or demon, demon. Empty, but I can talk that. We can talk that way and we can relate and see that way. You guys doing okay? Okay, second thing, still about the danger. So won't, won't I act out if I start getting into this and not just sort of ignoring them? Won't I end up being da- a dangerous, crazy? And this isn't the kind of thing that sort of terrorists believe in doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, what are the implications for ethics? It's a really important question. Um, knowing image as image, and I said that this morning, what happens is images are alive for us and not realized to be images, to have poetic truth. They're taken as literal truth. So the holy war, the holy jihad, is is not seen as an image, it's a poetic image. It's taken literally and all kinds of mayhem ensues. People flying planes into buildings. And then very shortly afterwards, George W. Bush declares a war on evil. Is that not an image? In both cases, not alive to image as image, fantasy as fantasy, completely literalizing a poetic image. That's the problem. The images themselves, the fantasies themselves, are not the problem. It's the conception of them. That's the problem. So as I say, knowing image as image empowers them in certain ways and disempowers in other ways, makes it safe. But also, as I mentioned earlier, in relation to a couple of the examples, um, sometimes you get the sense that this Im- imaginal person or being is asking you, demanding you for something it needs to manifest in life. I need to speak these words. I need to express this. I need to um, materialize something. And sometimes not. Sometimes it's just a sense of something is needing honoring without, without obvious expression at all. It's just... I need to acknowledge and sense a kind of beauty or holiness there even. It does not need, no one else need know anything. Some, it, there's a soulfulness that comes from it through feeling its necessity and beauty and not necessarily expressing it. And sometimes, you know, I talk to people who are talking, it sounds a little bit similar, but I get a little nervous when they're talking. I feel a little uneasy because it sounds like, it sounds a bit pompous what they're saying. And it's as if, What's going on there? It's the, there's a solidification of the whole thing and, and an identification. The ego is identified with people. I am a healer and I am this and I am that. It's, it's all very solid and a bit too serious and a bit too, I don't know, it's just too solid. Problem there. So the whole thing is not then seen as poetry, as more imaginable. But it's interesting. Um, if, if you really get into this stuff, we're, we're kind of asked a little bit to discern, well, what is just ego nonsense? Do you know this word, papancha? Some of you, it's like proliferation or the mind just creating a storm or a whole issue or something. What is ego or papancha? And what is coming from the daemon? What is actually what John Keats, the poet, called soul-making? We're actually asked to discern here. It's not necessarily that easy. 
one way of noticing a difference is what if ego and papancha goes around in loops and feels very uh, petty it has a quality of pettiness to it the ego this other stuff we're talking about actually uh, as I said it tends to um, bring the heart and the body and the energies into alignment to empower something to open expand the energy So we're asked for some sensitivity here. Things are not quite as simple as they might, or we would sometimes like them to be. We just dismiss all of this stuff and be really simple with something called life or reality in a bare way. Sometimes something in papancha, right in this vortex of craziness that seems like just a lot of nonsense, something right in the middle of that, not all of it, but something in it needs respecting, maybe, sometimes. It's difficult. Even in our lives or looking around us, very easily we, we tend to judge a lot of this as just ego stuff. So you m- might see someone, maybe she's wearing, she's dressed a certain way, and we think, oh, she just wants attention. We, we quickly put it into a box that has to do with the demands of the ego. Or actually, uh, speaking about Hendrix, there was, I don't know where I found this, there was a series of um, his correspondence when he was, he was quite young still, and... Um, touring with other bands as a sort of side, uh, what do you call it, side, side man, and uh, still learning his trade. He was still really developing his, his powers as a musician. And he wrote these postcards back to his younger brother and his father. And, and at some point, the, it, we could read it as complete arrogance. He said, I played the blues like you never heard. And he was just like, what's this? It's ego. Or uh, Picasso speaking about Matisse. Oh, what's Matisse? It's just a splash of red. It's nothing. And you think, what a unpleasant little man. It's just his ego. Is it? Or is something else going on there? Did any of you see the film Senna? This, yeah. uh, now, I, I don't know. I mean, something... Uh, I decided to see that film partly because of this. I'm not at all interested in racing Formula One. It doesn't interest me at all. What was interesting going to see the film was it would be... So he's a, for those of you who don't know, he's a Brazilian Formula One racing driver who actually died in, in a car crash um, in a race. <coughs> And he was world champion and stuff. So very easily, I, I would have thought of that. It's like, that's just ego. A bunch of guys racing cars, uh, burning a lot of carbon, as it do, but anyway, um, racing their cars. Who can be number one? A big puffed up ego of this competition. When you go and actually pay more open attention, you see there's something that's coming through him. There's, there's a poetic uh, nature to what's going on there. It's not just ego. There's something actually incredibly beautiful about, about what, what was coming through him. And yet, it, it is somehow wrapped up in that as being number one and being world champion. It's not just ego, though. And even in the Buddhist tradition, if you know um, Chandrakirti, was one of the probably, uh, let's say, the third most influential Buddhist teacher of all time after the Buddha and Nagarjuna. And um, he, as, as was characteristic, talks about other teachers and their books. And what's it? This guy is a, a nincompoop. Uh, he's an utter fool, he makes, makes mistake after mistake, and he writes this. And this is the, the way of expressing oneself. And again, he's like, well, I suppose, thought he was supposed to be enlightened. Surely he wouldn't have that kind of ego. Or if you know uh, the Tibetan tradition, uh, actually the late Indian tradition of Buddhism and the Tibetan tradition, the degree of polemic there and name-calling and cutting people down and dismissing and, and, and puffing with, I'm the only one who knows the truth. You can look for the truth with all these other teachers. You will only find it here. Think, what on earth is going on? These people are supposed to be enlightened. 
<laughs> and listen to the Buddha shortly after his enlightenment. So I'm talking about the things we usually would dismiss as ego and questioning whether it's really the ego. This is what the Buddha said to someone who said, met, met this person shortly after his enlightenment. The person says, wow, you are radiant. Tell me who your teacher is. And the Buddha answers, having fully known on my own, to whom should I point as a teacher? As my teacher, I have no teacher, and one like me can't be found. Can't be found in the world with its in the world with its priests and royalty and common people. One like me can't be found. I have no counterpart, he says. I am an arahant. One of the translations of arahant is the defeater of all. I am the unexcelled teacher. He said. Oh, maybe he wasn't enlightened. What are we going to say? What are we going to do with that? Is there? I want actually, if you know, there's a to me a myth that speaks very, very beautifully, very deeply. Uh, something you'll know: the myth of Horus. He's the falcon son of the goddess Isis in Egyptian mythology. And Isis is getting ready to give birth to him, I and mean, she becomes aware that it's a falcon. She stands out, everybody. It's a falcon. Out <laughs> <laughs> he sort of roars. And the first thing he does is he just takes off in this sort of supersonic flight. And he flies, and he just flies straight out. And, and he flies, and he says, I have flown further than any of the gods. So again, it's this, it sounds like an ego, and, and it, but that's part of his, what's uh, intrinsic to the myth, is the, the far-outness, the directness, the speed, and the proclamation of that. And also what's powerful about Horus is the eyes. The eyes are very powerful. He has this enemy called Seth, and they fight, and Seth scratches his eyes and wounds his eyes. He finds an old uh, sage who heals his eyes with gazelle's milk. Uh, it's a beautiful story. But anyway, uh, the thing that I really want to say is about this. I have flown further than all the gods. And the Buddha says, who can equal me? And the Tibetan teachers say, I know, you know, what's going on? Is it just ego? Or is it more that we have oversimplified the whole notion of self and ego? Is that really the problem? Something's oversimplified in our way of thinking about all this and our assumptions about all this. And similarly, something might be oversimplified in our notion of what repression is. So usually, nowadays, in a sort of psychotherapeutically informed culture, we tend to assume what's repressed is what's from the past. The experiences, the wounds, the traumas from my childhood, etc. Could it not be Rather, that it's not the past that's repressed, but it's these angels and these demons and these, these that are repressed because they don't fit our view anymore. There's no room for them. And we just assume their ego or their uh, some kind of weird pathological structure. Okay, so I, w- I want to wrap up now. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, there's, there's, there's a good chance that um, to experiment in the way that I'm talking about, to entertain some of the ideas that we've been discussing, it maybe it needs a relatively deep freedom already. That once one feels a looseness with the self and a relative ease from a lot of stuff, that one's actually free enough to experiment with, with this kind of thing. Maybe that's true for some people. For other people, not yet free, still caught up in the usual stuff, still suffering, still bumping into the same old stuff, but they'll listen and they'll hear something. There's something, as I say, in the soul 
feels a calling. There's a necessity there. So maybe one, maybe the other, maybe both. But so maybe it takes a certain freedom, but I would also say it brings a certain freedom, as I said earlier, a kind of radical freedom, a freedom even beyond what we usually conceive of as freedom. Part of the reason for that, part of the reason is that, uh, well, part, part of the freedom is because the image and the fantasy we have of awakening and freedom and what that looks like is actually quite small so that we find ourselves expressing or certain things in our life and it doesn't fit and it has no room and it's not to be given life. Maybe though that begins to be broken through and expanded so that we tend to think enlightenment looks that way and holiness and beauty and divinity if we use those words they are expressed like that, they have that character. But maybe there are other gods, and maybe there are other archetypes that have their divinity, their holiness. And we're just not used to seeing holiness, divinity, beauty that way. We've locked it all into certain images and fantasies without even realizing what the images and fantasies are. So it's not always the typically Christian uh, presentation of purity or divinity or whatever it is. Or the typically Buddhist. The typically Buddhist ones are usually calm and equanimous and sober and chaste. This is the typical Buddhist vision of what's beautiful and noble and enlightened. That's what it looks like. That word uh, daemon, D-A, it's got two different words, D-A-I-M-O-N or D-A-E-M-O-N, which used to have this sense of holiness to it kinds of holiness, kinds of necessity, kinds of depth. It became our word demon, D-E-M-O-N, and became all of them that didn't fit into the Christian kind of presentation of divinity, got shunted into demonic equals satanic equals evil. So for example, there were um, shrines and temples of Aphrodite, a goddess, a divinity, of a certain kind of love and eros and sensuality and beauty, the Christians took over, and uh, and that that became she became a demon, uh, a useless whore. Uh, I've forgotten the language they described slut, a hussy, and not divine at all. So it happened in Christianity. Look, has it happened in Buddhism in a different way too? This is going on not because we don't tend to think in terms of gods, but in, in some way is it also characteristic of the evolution of Buddhism? There's a question there. So last thing. Um, one can practice with all this in all kinds of ways, all kinds of possibilities, only skimming the surface, as I said today. But one of the if you like, most significant things is actually beginning to realize that images and fantasies exist for us anyway very powerfully. They are in our lives and they have power in our lives. And that's a big and important insight. It's a deep insight. Especially where there's a sense of meaningfulness or resonance, there an image or fantasy is usually alive. Where there's a sense of beauty, meaningfulness, resonance, power, 
So can I see that? Can I explore it? Can I practice with this? Can I practice entertaining certain ideas and see what happens? (coughs) If we do, there's a possibility, and I've only hinted at some things, but there's a possibility of opening to a whole other sense of what a whole other kind of freedom, let's put it that way, a whole other kind of freedom, a whole other level of freedom, and a whole other way of conceiving and sensing of existence, a whole other way of feeling our existence. It's possible. That's why we have a quiet point today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.